Welcome back to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about the ways tech and innovation can create a freer, fairer, and more prosperous future. You know what? I'm tired of begging for my rights, tired of pleading with bureaucrats and politicians to please, pretty please, give us our freedoms back. And yet it's so very easy, even in libertarian circles, to get a kind of tunnel vision when it comes to expanding liberty, as if the only way to do so is by going through the political process, by asking, negotiating with the state. But what if instead we just built a free society without first asking permission? We live in a time of breathtaking innovation with emerging technologies that fundamentally challenge state control over everything from currency to identification. There's a new book out titled New Technologies of Freedom, published by the American Institute for Economic Research with the support of the Mancole Economic Education Foundation that I really can't recommend highly enough. It shows the ways that technologies like smart contracts, artificial intelligence, and cryptocurrency will work in unison to allow a new and radical kind of digital citizenship. Matthew and I are joined today by two of the book's authors, Darcy Allen and Chris Berg. Both are research fellows at the Blockchain Innovation Hub, which is housed at RMIT University in Australia. Both are also accomplished economists who have written widely on the economics of emerging technology. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having us. Now, let's start with a real basic question. What are these new technologies of freedom that the book title refers to? So the New Technologies of Freedom is describing a suite of frontier technologies from cryptocurrencies and blockchain to artificial intelligence, um, machine learning, and across the, 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 the wide technological revolutions that we're currently experiencing or are forecast to shortly experience. Our observation about those technologies is that they provide a enormous opportunity for liberty. They provide us with a suite of techniques, tools, and mechanisms by which we can start pairing back some of our lost liberties from the state and forging exciting new ones as well. Now, this is is tends to be um, kind of blockchain heavy. I mean, that's not the only thing. You have artificial intelligence uh, in here, uh, but there's a, lot, a big section on cryptocurrency, on smart contracts, and other blockchain tech. Um, so when you went about selecting the topics within, you know, within this uh, uh, vision of what the future of liberty could be like, um, how did you decide what went in and what didn't when it came to emerging technology? Look, it was always going to be blockchain heavy because blockchain is, I, I think, a very exciting and powerful new um, technology. We call it an institutional technology because it provides a new way of coordinating human societies. Um, and and you know we can talk we can talk at great length about that. But um, what we're talking about here is really it, it's not just AI and blockchain. It's also the communications technologies that um, underpin them, like. Uh, 5G communication. It's the Internet of Things technologies that allow us to put um, full-fledged computers in so many more devices that we've had and connect them to all the other computers and devices in the world as well. Um, so it's, it, it is this quite significant 
array of um, uh, technologies. Now, I think blockchain is particularly important because that's a, a sort of underlying fundamental institutional technology that we will use to govern and control so many of these these other ones as well. Um, but it is important to point out that we are we are interested in and looking for the opportunities in this this enormous wave of technological change that's coming down you know, in the next five to 10 years. I had a, uh, a question from a specific, I suppose, uh, libertarian angle, uh, because working in emerging technologies, I'm uh, often worried about the implications of new technologies on uh, civil liberties and um, and other features of our lives. But I'm, I'm struck often that there the maybe isn't such a thing as a, a good or bad or libertarian or dictatorial technology. It's all about the, the application. Uh, so so what, what do you say to people who might say, well, um, the Internet of Things is very exciting, but it can be used by government for surveillance uh, or artificial intelligence has many uh, interesting applications for freedom, but could also possibly be used in uh, weaponry. What, what, what do you say to uh, those kind of criticisms? Well, I, I think it's entirely right that these technologies can, of course, be used for good and bad. And there are a lot of challenges that we see in the popular press about these technologies. There are huge implications for, for privacy and our security and so on. But the question is, how do you deal with those challenges? Do you attempt to use the state to try and pare back the technologies and and try and insert privacy into them through regulation? I'm personally, and Chris is, I imagine, very sceptical about how that that happens in practice. And if, if that's not an effective way to solve some of these problems, then the response should be an entrepreneurial response. It should be that the way that we defend against these challenges is that we use these very technologies to solve the problems that we're worried about. If we're worried about AI creating challenges around deep fakes on the internet, for instance, then the way to respond to that is to build new platforms that detect those deep fakes and respond to it in that way. So we use this term in the book called adversarial liberty, which is the idea that you shouldn't use the state to try and implement those freedoms. Uh, You should be entrepreneurial about this and respond to this in a decentralized bottom-up way. Now, you, you brought up adversarial liberty, um, at least the, the place that I know that it was in your discussion of uh, artificial intelligence. And I actually thought it was, a, um, at least for me, it was a kind of a novel approach uh, to either the utopian or the dystopian visions of what AI will mean for the future, where there's a, you know, a super intelligence will take over and, and Skynet us all in Terminator parlance, or uh, there's nothing to see here, no nothing to worry about. Um, th- your response kind of mediated the difference, which was not to say there won't be issues with new artificial intelligences um, uh, having adverse effects, but that adversarial liberty will – that approach will help mitigate, mitigate the downside risks. Uh, how will that work? How do you envision that happening? Yeah, so look, look that's a really good question. Um, so I – I think this is not always a um, discussion that is most usefully viewed in the abstract. 
Um, so the Skynet scenario is not the most likely scenario for the future of artificial intelligence, um, although it is one that, that I find you have to directly tackle because people are genuinely concerned about it. Um, and and when you, you bring up artificial intelligence, you need to think about this. The adversarial liberty idea, though, is it starts, as, as Darcy's pointed out, it starts from the observation that these technologies, um, whether it is artificial intelligence or whether it's um, any of the other technologies we're talking about, are going much faster than any regulator, any policymaker can tackle. Um, uh, I know in the uh, in Australia, and I'm certain in the United States and um, and around the developed world, there's an incredible lack of knowledge from policymakers and legislators about um, about the really fundamentals of some of these new technologies. So we don't have a choice, right? Then, other than develop our own responses in the community and in the private sector to the negative impacts of these technologies. So um, we're not going to have a um, a well-designed deep fakes law, even if that was desirable. So deep fakes, of course, is um, uh, the use of artificial intelligence to um, falsify um, audiovisual um, documents uh, to to put ahead of some some person on somebody else's body to to falsify um, audio of some person speaking. So you might think that they're doing something that they have never done. Um, now, w- w- there's not going to be a deep fakes law, even if we even if we thought that was desirable, that would be effective at tackling these technologies because they're just going too fast. They're they're just too complicated. So we don't have a choice. But to use uh, the suite of technologies that we have, to use um, uh, our entrepreneurial capacity to build responses to any of the negative impacts. So when we're talking about adversarial liberty, it's a community or a private-centric response to um, potential negative impacts of, of, of new changes. We have to be building tools to tackle um, uh, building good tools to tackle bad tools. A, a lot of my um, research in the liberty movement and a lot of my activism in the liberty movement has been focused on freedom of speech. And in the freedom of speech context, um, you know, the simple line is, well, if there's bad speech, the answer to bad speech is, is more speech. I think the answer to bad technological use is going to be more technological use. It's not going to be regulation. It's not going to be legislation. Mm. That makes sense. So that's a specific example of how you can essentially have, you know, AI systems fighting with each other to both create and to detect deep fakes. Um, Let's walk this back for a second. At the beginning of the book, you have this um, you have this concern, which I think will resonate with uh, anyone working in, you know, like like us working at a libertarian think tank, working in DC policy circles, but I suspect it will resonate with a broader set of listeners, which is um, that libertarians, especially in America, and I imagine in Australia as well, uh, we get caught in this kind of state constricted vision, this, this trap of, of allowing the state, even as we oppose it, to constrict our vision of what is possible, that we are so focused on um, uh, on uh getting freedom for ourselves, clawing back freedom from the state that we never think beyond that battle. 
And so we, uh, as you put in your, it really is kind of the thesis of the book, you say, quote, we argue that the liberty movement needs to spend less time begging the state for its freedoms back. Rather, those interested in expanding liberties need to be more entrepreneurial, building the monies, institutions, and organizations that make us freer. So why is it so easy for us to get caught in that trap? Um, where does that problem come from and what can we do to snap out of it? That's a great question. I, uh, I'll, uh, Darcy should tackle this as well because um, we, we may come at it from slightly different aspects. But I've spent my career um, before before joining academia in um, the free, t- free market think tank world um, at the Institute of Public Affairs. I, I worked there um, for, for more than a decade. And, and so I, I spent my, my time um, in that free market community uh, doing precisely that. So debating public policy and debating legislation, arguing against bad laws and arguing for good laws and so forth. Um, and, and that's important work. And it's, it, it's not just important work, it's vital work, um, because by and large, it's the state that is the um, uh, restriction on our liberties. But what I think we miss when we um, have that single-minded focus is the opportunities to build alternative protections against the state. We spend a lot of time talking to policymakers because they're the ones that make the policies that make us less free or more free. But we don't spend enough time thinking about how we can um, get around those liberty restrictions, how we can make those policymakers' lives harder to um, restrict our freedoms as well. Um, now, I'm just excited by the possibilities of these technologies because suddenly I see that opportunity. Um, it's not the first time in history that new technologies have provided op- opportunities for for, um, for for liberty expansion. Obviously, the printing press and the rise of mass media communication was a incredible push against state power. But the speed at which these are arriving on our doorstep, the um, breadth of opportunity that they present for us to act independently and freely in a globalized economy is it's just unprecedented. And I think it's time for us to add the idea that you can build liberty to the liberty movement's focus, not get rid of the policy focus, but start thinking about how we can build it. Now, I'm talking, I mean, we're talking to an um, incredibly sympathetic audience. Your podcast is Building Tomorrow. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I, know, I, know, I know you agree with this. Um, <laughs> yes. and, and, I, and, and, and to a certain extent, I think this is the manifesto of, of this show. But um, it's something that I think is, is um, the, the liberty movement more broadly um, can and should be thinking about. Yeah, we're, we're the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> it's good to have a sympathetic audience first <laughs> i might just add to what chris has said to say that i i think that the optimal strategy for the liberty movement has changed over time and that we need to update to those changes the logic that legislation is what is holding back um, some of our rights and our liberties so we need to repeal that legislation may have been the optimal strategy to expand liberty 20, 30, 40 years ago. But today that strategy looks different, right? It's it's truly remarkable that these technologies are available to us and that instead of 
trying to advocate for having less corruption in courts in developing countries, those people can just decide to sign smart contracts on blockchains and secede from the legal system entirely. We have technologies now that mean we don't, that that monopoly on institutions that we're so used to, this idea that you live within a particular state, within a particular country, and that if you want to change those rules, you have to operate through politics or convince people that liberty is a good idea. That's changing. It means that you can just start to secede to better institutions and push pressure back on politics that way, uh, which I think is super exciting. Can I make can I make one more observation here? Um, uh, it's a little bit of an East Coast West Coast thing in in the United States. So um, we are spending because Darcy and I work in blockchain, which is partly about policy, but also about developing business models and 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 so forth for the new economy. Um, so we spend a lot of time in um, San Francisco and and the Bay Area working with companies to develop new blockchain applications and systems and so forth. And what we've discovered is, um, and this was a surprise to us, I'm sure it's not a surprise to American listeners, but what we've discovered is a parallel libertarian universe that is not very well connected to the to the um, East Coast libertarian universe that I'm, I'm much more familiar with. Um, and a part of this project is bringing those two communities together. One community is focused on law and legislation and policy. The other community is focused on um, uh, building alternative uh, uh, liberties and alternative institutions that can bring us back liberties. I think um, we as a liberty movement can act more cohesively and we can cooperate better if we bring those two diverse communities together. I, I was wondering what the the low-hanging fruit are in this in this situation because I'm I'm, I'm reminded that uh, it doesn't seem as if opportunities are equally distributed here. So uh, there's a lot of what I suppose Adam Thier at Mercatus would um, call evasive entrepreneurship, people that just uh, manage to circumvent a lot of existing regulations to build something new. Uh, and I'm reminded of uh, Uber's strategy, which seemed to be to just drop into cities and bet on the fact that people would fall in love with it. And that's a kind of app-based technology uh, where it's perhaps easier to do that. But if you have a really new, interesting idea for a flying machine, it's much easier for the government to ground you. Uh, and and so I do wonder where you think this kind of uh, libertarian technological approach is going to run into the most issues. You know, if someone wants to shoot something into space, it's much harder to circumvent government there. Uh, and, and secondly, if I could just make this a two-pronged question, um, also, what, what do you think about the ways to mitigate the risks of uh, private companies turning to government uh, in order to take advantage of new technologies? Um, I'm reminded... Uh, back when the metro, uh, back when I used to get on the underground, which was uh, seems like an age ago now, but uh, this um, cryptocurrency exchange called Gemini had ads in in the the, the metro, and and it read, "The revolution will be regulated," um, and their entire pitch was, "Look, you're there's this new thing, this new blockchain technology, um, and we're the ones pushing to get it regulated to make it kosher." Uh, so I know it's two big questions, but I'm interested in your take on both of them. 
They're both very big and very interesting questions. Um, I, I do think to the first question that this is unevenly distributed against uh, between different technologies. So I think this is one of the reasons why I'm so excited about institutional technologies like blockchain because they don't face as many of those physical constraints or these are technologies that are more born free um, than not born free, which is, I think, a term that Adam Thierry uses in his Evasive Entrepreneurship book, um, which is a fantastic book, by the way. Uh, to the second question, this is an entrepreneurial choice that we haven't, we don't really talk about enough. So entrepreneurs have a choice. They can either completely try and secede from government regulation as it exists today. Uh, and the hottest topic in blockchain at the moment is DeFi or decentralized finance. What's happening right now is there is a there is a private financial system being built very, very rapidly where you can um, loan and earn interest rates and borrow money all well outside the reach of the state, complete evasive entrepreneurship. On the other hand, you see attempts like what we saw with Facebook's Libra cryptocurrency, which was an attempt to essentially integrate within the regulatory system partly, which failed completely, to be clear. That, that, it received massive backlash from regulators. And we don't often think about this choice, but, but that's a very different entrepreneurial choice. You can either try and get inside the regulations and craft them to uh, your own benefit. Um, that's a risky strategy in itself. And that's going to be quite difficult, particularly with the entrenched interests in a lot of these industries. Or you can leave completely or secede completely and evade. Um, and that creates a whole lot of other restraints. You can't, you can't rely on the existing legal system. You can't rely on existing regulation in any way. You have to build an entirely private economy. Um, and all the institutions and infrastructure to make that work. I think it's a very... It's a very complicated question. We wouldn't be talking about what we're talking about if it wasn't for um, the pervasive nature of digital infrastructure. Um, so the fact that we are constantly communicated to with each other um, digitally at all times, 24 hours a day, because we've got our mobile phones or our cell phones, we've got uh, always on internet connections at home and at work. Um, this is a digital first story. Where it comes into most tension with the state is where is what we sometimes call the the on ramps and off ramps the the institutions that get us into the digital world um the institutions that get us from the centralized world to the decentralized world when we're talking about cryptocurrencies currencies particularly because governments can regulate banks they find it very hard to regulate cryptocurrency um systems so what they they end up doing is focusing on well what is the interaction between the traditional banks and the and the cryptocurrencies? So we regulate the exchanges. Um, that's where a lot of these challenges turn up um, uh, most. But in that sense, your, your question about what is the low-hanging fruit? Well, the low-hanging fruit is the digital-only, decentralized-first, global-first, um, uh, unregulated-first uh, technologies. And in that sense... I, it, it's almost it's almost um, a cliche now, uh, you know, more than ten years after Bitcoin was invented, to talk about cryptocurrencies, particularly in the libertarian community. But it is kind of remarkable to think 
that 10 years ago or just over 10 years ago, if you were in the United States or if you had to use the US dollar in your wallet, you only legally really had the US dollar. Some people traded in Forex markets, but that's a vanishingly small amount of the population and you had to be a very sophisticated investor and um, uh, to do so. Now we're in a world where we can seamlessly, and many people do, have not just one or two currencies, but tens of currencies just carrying around on their phone or um, on their computer or in a, in a, uh, a cold wallet or something like that. We are in a totally, totally new monetary environment just because of this Invention. The consequences of that are going to take time to work out, but it means that some of the traditional mechanisms of state control, like capital controls, um, the requirement that we um, uh, we can we can we will tax you in the local currency, so we'll print that local currency and spend that local currency. That's been undermined. There's so much has changed just because of a interesting digital experiment, a digital only experiment. So if we're talking about low-hanging fruit, I mean, that low-hanging fruit can have incredible, incredibly significant consequences for political economy and the nature of the state. Uh, we talk a lot in this book about much more than, than cryptocurrencies, and we try to expand out from that, because I think in the libertarian movement, as we say, cryptocurrencies is a bit old hat. We've all been talking about it for so long. Um, it's It's been read in, but it is worth dwelling on the significance of just that change, a totally new monetary system uh, de- developed basically overnight. Although I, I wanted, uh, if, we, if we could uh, return to something that, that Darcy mentioned earlier, which was the, the use of blockchain for smart contracts and law, uh, because uh, many libertarians will, will say, well, I, I want a a limited state, but we still need a government to uh, run a police force and to to enforce laws. And uh, I'm wondering, Dust, if you could talk through why um, what what the advantages in that technology are, because it seems at the moment that uh, I could sign a contract with you, uh, agreeing to say you know sell some property, and then I could breach that contract, and you could show up to a judge um, who would uh, adjudicate it. Uh, so I guess the first question is what what's exactly wrong with that system, and secondly. Uh, why are smart contracts better than that? Because at least with a, a judge with a state, um, at the very end of it, um, there's potentially the use of force to make sure I get what uh, is owed to me. Uh, how, how would a smart contract even do that? The answer is that it's, it's different depending on what problems that people are facing. So before I mentioned that in the developing world, this may make a lot more sense because, of course, the legal systems can be much more corrupt and can suffer more problems. And every institutional choice that we have, whether we decide to use courts to enforce our contracts or whether we decide to use uh, some other decentralised smart contract technology, it's always relative to how those courts exist. So the first point is that it's, um, it's much more useful within developing economies where we already have those problems. These technologies, however, can be built up to much more than just simple smart contract exchanges. And that's what we've seen over the last three to four years in the blockchain space. So the example of a smart contract uh, that that people use quite often is something like a vending machine where you put money in and in response, you get a product back. There was was an automatically executing contract there. Um, But imagine if that vending machine could also have various owners 
who could vote on what uh, what different products go inside that vending machine. It could hire contractors to clean itself. You start to build these smart contracting technologies up into new types of organisations, what are often called decentralised autonomous organisations, that we don't even really know what's possible with a lot of these technologies yet. The other point is that what's exciting is we can, we're in a world now where we can choose what institutional system that we want to be part of, right? We don't have the same preferences. You may well prefer to uh, use a territorial court um, and I may well prefer, I see the cost differently and prefer to use a smart contract. So we're moving into a world where we have institutional choice, which I think is really exciting. And that's been, that's been available since, you know, the medieval period where you've got merchants' courts and so forth, but it's available to, to us right now. Um, we have the capacity, um, the four of us on this on this podcast, to set up an organisation completely free of Australian or US corporate law um, that operates completely differently, um, that we can have shared ownership over, um, uh, that is following nothing but a series of smart contracts. Now, you, you're absolutely right that a smart contract isn't going to physically repossess your home. Um, it, there's always going to be an interaction between the digital world and terrestrial world that will be a site of tension. But that's that's true now. What this gives us is on the margin the capacity to make more certain agreements, more auditable agreements and um, more opaque, sorry, transparent uh, agreements. Um, uh, so in that sense, we've got a remarkable new add-on to our world, but that's an add-on that we can, um, we, can, we, we can use for more things that can reduce the, what we call the costs of trust in what is a very, very expensive legal, regulatory, and political system. I, I was astonished uh, by a statistic in the book um, and uh, where you say that perhaps uh, as much as $29 trillion in global GDP is bound up in provisioning trust. All, all the accountants and lawyers and judges and prison guards, anyways, the whole apparatus, all, all of which exists so that we can trust strangers as we make exchanges of houses and products and currency and and so on can i mean that that is real money and so even if a you know a relatively small percentage um is is uh you know is eliminated because of smart contracts if we can extend that trust more cheaply uh more securely more transparently uh even a small percent of 29 trillion is a real gain a real gain in uh um that doesn't have to be done by the kludgy system we currently use. So can you explain a little bit more about, um, you know, why trust is so expensive as we currently do it and, and how blockchains can help beyond smart contracts? Yeah, of course. So um, that's a piece of analysis done by our colleagues, um, uh, Michaela Novak, Jason Potts and Sinclair Davidson. And what they did is they um, made an assessment just looking, actually, it was based on US data. Um, made an assessment of how many people were employed, what percentage of the labor force was employed in trust-based professions. Because a lot of what we do um, in the economy is provide trust 
over other people's transactions or over the firms that we operate in. So an accountant will provide to um, a large extent trust that the, um, the the financial system of the firm is being well managed. The legal system is obviously um, partly there to enforce contracts, to make sure, to, to mitigate against the cost of trusting each other, to, um, to make sure that home is repossessed, to go back to our earlier question. Um, we agreed to a certain contract, so we've got the legal system as a backstop to make sure that everybody does what they say they would do on the contract. Um, the, the police do this. Management does a lot of this. A lot of management is about making sure that um, uh, staff are doing what they should be doing in the interest of shareholders and so on and so forth. And um, so in their analysis, um, that is a just an extraordinary, as you say, $29 trillion uh, globally is dedicated towards trust. Now, that doesn't mean that we can um, suddenly save $29 trillion because obviously we can't repossess the home online. Um, but it does give us a um, suggestion about the possibilities of um, a new suite of technologies that can reduce those costs. We've got to start treating trust as a cost in the economy. It is a very expensive thing to provide. And if we can provide it cheaply, more cheaply at the margin, um, we're going to be a lot wealthier and we're going to be able to redeploy those resources to to something else. Now, part of that is just ensuring that financial contracts, for example, um, are are executed as written, and that's a really powerful use case for smart contracts and blockchain technology. Part of that is ensuring that we've got a secure, a, a, a strong cybersecurity around our digital transactions and our digital um, activities online. Um, and all of those fields, we can see strong opportunities for blockchain and artificial intelligence to reduce the cost of provisioning trust in the economy. So that's 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 what we're really, really excited about. And that's a very practical way that we can see the benefits. It's not just about protecting freedom of speech. It's not just a cool Hayekian story about how we can have uh, multiple monetary systems in one economy. It's a, actually about reducing the cost, the enormous burden that it um, uh, that the economy has on on providing trust to one another. I might just add on to the end of that that this has larger ongoing implications for liberty as well. Uh, so if we can provide trust using some of these decentralised technologies, we would expect that the structure of the economy would change. We would move away from trust being provided by, by hierarchy, either by government itself, who's providing property registries, for instance, or by corporate firms who are providing it through um, monitoring and the ledgers that they keep, we would predict that the economy itself would become more decentralised. There would be there would be smaller firms. They would be using trust technologies like blockchain to be networked together. Um, the economy looks different, and and that has implications for liberty because much of the regulatory state that is built up is in response to large corporate hierarchies. So big areas of government policy and intervention like labour law, like antitrust and competition policy, are premised on the idea that the economy is made up of large corporate hierarchies and they have too much power. They have too much power to exploit workers or they have too much power to raise prices. And as the economy changes shape, 
because of these new trust technologies that Chris is talking about, we would expect that at the very least, a lot of those regulatory battles will come to the fore uh, again. Um, And a lot of the justifications for those policies will start to fall away. I mean, there may be some kind of justification for regulating a large centralised firm with competition policy, but does that make sense if you have a decentralised network doing those same activities? Those same power problems aren't there. Um, so, So what I'm trying to get across here is that we're going to see big debates come up again about large areas of government intervention in response to the way that the trust is changing the shape of the economy. I mean, I, I do find that prospect exciting. I mean, decentralization of the economy would be a salutary you know, transformation um, that would come with, I mean, I think knock on effects that both left and right, that both libertarians and non-libertarians can uh, be excited about. Um, I, I suppose there's a note of, uh, let me introduce a note of skepticism, which is that um, so far, a lot of the early corporate adopters of blockchain tech have tended to be big outfits, big supply chain companies. Uh, some of the big banks are banding together to use blockchain um, to ease financial, you know, the cost of financial transactions. Uh, Libra is a failed example, uh, which you you know you mentioned earlier. Um, so so far, a lot of the work has been done um, to help the large multi-divisional firms that you talk about in the book. Uh, it doesn't appear to have made them less competitive yet. And so maybe the yet's the key word there, but why aren't we seeing that happen yet? At what point will the, what, what will the takeoff point for this decentralization of the economy be? So I, I'm actually pretty excited by the use of this technology for um, by, by these large firms because uh, in part it validates the opportunity for the technology itself. Um, I think the long run effect of the technology is actually to make w- some of those large hierarchical firms to dehierarchicalize them, um, as Darcy was describing, because they will discover that if they're adopting blockchain for a large supply chain, well, they don't need these big top heavy management systems that they've built up over, over, um, over the course of the last century. Um, so that's, really optimistic. But I have to say, though, the most exciting work that's being done in the blockchain space is not in those big hierarchical, large traditional firms. It's being done in the small startups. It's being done in the um, in the communities that are building these technologies rather than the Facebooks and Googles of the world. It's the, um, it's the Ethereum community. It's the Zcash community community it's the bitcoin community cosmos these huge communities which aren't organizations they're not corporations but they are networks of small companies entrepreneurs of even individual developers making really compelling things you are right to say that the blockchain revolution hasn't happened yet and this is speculation about what we predict will happen. Um, but to be fair, um, many of these technologies, not just less, not just 10 years old, but um, uh, less than five years old, the first real full-fledged smart contract platform can be dated at earliest to maybe 2015. It had its five-year anniversary. Uh, this is Ethereum. 
um, the Ethereum cryptocurrency network. Um, uh, it, it had its five-year anniversary the other day. Um, a lot of this is incoming. But if we're interested in the future of the of liberty, we have to look at these green shoots. We can't just observe that, well, Google's a very big company right now. Facebook's a very big company right now. It will always be a very big company. We know in the digital world how quickly these things change. Um, and we can see very clearly from here um, how those changes are likely to occur. I mean, I, I suppose um, we had Finn Brunton, who wrote a book, uh, Digital Cash. Uh, we had him on the podcast uh, last year. And he did a very good job, and I think it, to your point of take a second uh, to think about how much has changed. Even if we're not at full, you know, crypto utopia here, no one would have thought twenty years ago, twenty five years ago. I mean, he goes back to the seventies and eighties. Uh, the idea behind what would become uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, become the blockchain eventually. Uh, those ideas were laid out better part of half a century ago, and they were wild and radical. And no one ever thought they would become practical things, practical technologies. It was all in the abstract. Um, so, you, you know, even to the point where we have Bitcoin, we have Ethereum, we have these platforms for developing um, new blockchain-based techs, um, it, it, it's, you know, it might not be what was promised, but it's a heck of a lot more than people thought was possible uh, not all that long ago. Um, I, I do have a question. Maybe you can put this in very practical terms for me. Um, there is a lot of uh, talk. and I mean, the, the original goal behind the development of cryptocurrency in, in, in Brunton's take is this kind of community of, you know, cypherpunks and, and anarchists, utopians, technologists. Um who had utopian aspirations. You know, the idea was that in these alternative currencies would undermine the, the power and authority of the state um, as a flip of the way in which fiat currencies uh, empower the state. So maybe you can you know, put some brass tacks to that. And how, how do fiat currencies empower the state? How do these alternative cryptocurrency, alternative payment systems um, undermine that power in, in practical terms? In, in practical terms, so historically, there's been a very tight coupling of the fact that the government, a government, will both print will print the currency, um, it will require you to pay taxes in that currency, um, and it will spend for public spending in that currency as well. And as governments have gotten a tighter control of that um, uh, that printing system, we've seen them grow. That's really the history of the late 19th to 20th century. Um, uh, so th there's a, th th that's slightly more abstract than you're looking for. Let's talk very practically. We have seen in the response to the Libra cryptocurrency, an enormous, enormous, um, panic on behalf of regulators, on behalf of monetary officials, on behalf of policymakers about the possibility that they are going to suddenly lose their monopoly over their currency, that they are going to be the subject of the monetary system, not the object of the money system. They're not going to be able to drive it any longer. Now, um, Libra is, uh, you, you've described Libra has failed. I'm slightly less pessimistic, but it's absolutely had to change um, in some disappointing ways in response to 
um, uh, particularly US policymakers and um, uh, and some European policymakers. But what that has shown us is the spectre of governments losing their control. In response, they've been developing these, uh, a lot of governments have developed these new central bank digital currencies that are supposed to um, provide some of the benefits of um, that Libra would have uh, given us as a community, um, but while maintaining control. So we're, we are dead smack in the middle of probably the biggest monetary fight that we've had since Bretton Woods, where we've got on the one side, central bank digital currencies being developed by traditional central banks. On the, uh, on the other side, we've got corporate digital currencies like Libra being developed, being attacked, being criticized. And of course, we've got a network of cryptocurrencies. So from a very practical sense, that monetary battle is ongoing. Darcy earlier mentioned um, uh, decentralized finance or DeFi, which is the coolest, hottest thing right now in, in, in the blockchain and cryptocurrency community. And what that shows you is, well, once you've got this suite of new um, financial technologies, what are the financial instruments? What is the financial system you can build using those um, building blocks? And they are unregulated. They are virtually impossible to regulate. There are new ways of raising funds for capital investment. There are new ways of investing outside the highly regulated exchanges um, and 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 um, terrestrial systems that we're so used to. So at a very practical level, these things are happening right now, um, it is sort of on our plate, again, back to we in the liberty movement, it's, it's, it, it's up to us to understand this as well. We need to be really well informed about the policy battles that are, that are coming down the track because of this rapid innovation. And I think that's a, that, that, that's a very useful thing that um, uh, your project does, and that's what we're trying to do at RMIT as well. What's the inflection point? I mean, so again, you know, we've had big promises. We're in the middle of a, a, a series of fights over the future of, of uh, financial, you know, financial processing and cryptocurrency. Um, and there are some signs of uh, out of Venezuela where you know Bitcoin mining was a way of uh, for folks to. Um, kind of arbitrage low electricity prices and the instability of Venezuela's currency during you know their economic collapse. I know in China there have been some, you know, there was an uptick of interest in cryptocurrency uh, as a way of getting around currency controls by the Chinese government. But it, it as you note in the book, cryptocurrency is not yet really currency. It's not really money in the sense that it facilitates exchange. It's more, you know, the land of different tribes of hodlers, you know, hoarding Hoarding their, you know, doing currency speculation. Um, what is the inflection point for a play? What what has to happen? Like if if we get some sort of massive economic collapse in uh, the U.S. and Australia and the developed world, is that enough at this point uh, for a real takeoff of cryptocurrency as cryptocurrency? Depends what you want, right? So, um, are you? Do we want mass adoption? Do we want everybody's parents? to be using this cryptocurrency and would we view that as as a success or are we excited by the possibility of 
um, the people on this podcast and listening to this podcast who are a technologically literate audience, um, are we excited by the capacity that they as individuals have to take back their liberties? I think sometimes we look at, because we're used to looking at things from a public policy lens, we assume that um, uh, uh, liberty is something that we forge as a large society. I think that's obviously important and it is important to care about the liberties of of everybody. Um, and it's important to care about the liberties of people who are um, not as technologically literate as, as we might be. But it's also really exciting that we can do this now, right? This is, this is super cool. So yeah. um, we can do these remarkable things um, uh, outside the power of the, the state um, uh, currency system. We can do it right now. We can communicate and transact with anybody around the world um, privately, independently. Um, and that is a that is a material advance on freedom, even if it has not been um, extended as much as I would like to to everybody on the planet. Because, in part, because it's, it, it's an early stage technology and, and early stage technologies take time. Now, I think one of the sections in the book that was most radical, I, I think will be least familiar to our listeners, is the discussion of crypto democracy, um, crypto succession. And so, you know, beyond the, the currency and, and uh, aspects of this, uh, you talk about a future in which people can have voice and exit from their current authoritarian regimes, uh, whether that's, well, in the US or China or wherever. Um, they can, you know, form new democratic orders uh, using um, using the blockchain. Um, the one bit in particular that I think will be hard a hard pill for those who are new to the concept to swallow. Uh, you talk about the buying and selling of tokenized votes, um, <laughs> and I think it's going to strike a lot of folks as alienating. I mean, think of all the rhetoric right now about dark money and billionaires buying elections. And so when you come in and say, "Hey, we're going to have a market and votes," <laughs> I think you know folks are going to have their their you know they're going to get their uh, feathers ruffled by that. So how would you explain that concept pretty simply and also gear it? How would you explain it to a skeptic? So let's say I'm like, ah, this is a terrible idea. It's just going to give all, more power to the billionaire class. Uh, and uh, I'm going to go vote for Bernie Sanders. I, I like convince me that this vision of a future is a thing I should be excited about. I love that you've picked up the most provocative part, perhaps, of the entire book. And, and Chris, <laughs> uh, that was just there to trigger you. Um, so Chris and Aaron Lane and I have actually written an entire separate book on this topic of crypto democracy. And our motivation there was to say, okay, so we have this new technology, blockchain technology. What can we expect that the effect of this is on democracy? And our starting point was, well, we think it's a little bit of a mistake to think that we're just going to take existing democratic structures, exactly the rules that we have now, and we're going to put our votes on the internet and do digital voting in some way. We think that it goes much, much further than that or opens a lot more possibilities. So the, the basis of this is that what we're calling a crypto democracy is using a blockchain-based platform for people to delegate and trade and cast their votes. And what this means is that people have more property rights in their own vote. 
So we often talk about you having a, a right in an election to vote. But if we think of our vote as a property right, it's actually a very, very highly regulated bundle of rights. You can only walk up and vote once every three or four years for particular candidates. You can't um, save that vote for a future election. We are in Australia. We have to vote. We are, we are compelled to vote by law. Right? So what would it look like if we had a lot more rights property rights attached to our own vote. Well, rather than me just being able to vote for a person within my particular electorate, maybe I could delegate my vote to Matthew, for instance. Perhaps that I don't want to uh, think about politics, but I have a rough idea that what Matthew thinks is what uh, I think and I want to delegate it to him. Right? Maybe I want to delegate some of my voting rights, so maybe on economic issues to Matthew, um, and maybe on social issues to Chris, right? So this is the idea that what does a democratic system look like where we have many more rights to vote? And we think that it gives you a better, it, it, it might integrate more knowledge into the democratic process and help people to form opinions. Now, we're not advocating for saying that we should definitely be able to buy and sell your vote. That's a fundamental right that you should have. Um, but now it's technological, technologically possible that you could do that. Uh, we, these are constitutional-level choices of what rights that you have, whether you could buy it or sell it or not. And as you say, most people will be quite sceptical about this. Um, but th there is some rationale behind saying that we should implement some market-like processes into democratic processes so that we can signify our intensity of preference by buying and selling votes. I mean I kind of set I kind of set you up for the the um with the hardest possible example to start with. I mean I No, but I, it's I the most enjoyable it's... example. It's the most <laughs> enjoyable example. So I, I just want to point out we buy and sell votes all the time, right? So um first of all, we're not just talking about um a a representative democracy we buy and sell votes in um corporate shareholder voting all the time but it's also the case that in the scenario that darcy describes um where we are delegating our vote to someone else we do that right now and we call them representatives and they vote on our behalf and we pay them to do so um we we, we compensate them with taxes so that they earn an income while they act on our behalf in the legislature. Um, it is interesting to think um, of which direction the money should go, given that they are providing a service so that I don't have to pay as much attention to politics as I might um, have to do otherwise if I had to vote on every single bill. Are they, we pay them right now, but should they be paying us for the pleasure? Um, we What we're doing is taking the opportunity that blockchain presents and trying to decompose how the incentives actually function and the possibilities of coordinating a democracy now that we can treat a vote as not just a thing that you get to do once every three or four years, but as a right, like a real right, one which we can dispose of, we which we can use, one which we can um, uh, withdraw our consent for at any time we want now, but you might say that this is speculative. But what what it tells us about these technologies, these classes of technologies, is that they have opened up the opportunity for really radical reform in a way that very few technologies have 
historically? We don't say this is likely to be applied in elections at the first instance, right? That's the first thing that we go to when we think about sort of collective choices and democracy. But we use collective choice decision-making all around us. We, we undertake shareholder voting. We, we vote in unions. Um, we have civil society organisations that vote. So I think that this is where some of these experimentations will, uh, will take place first and then perhaps filter up into the, into the broader public sphere. This, this conversation reminds me of uh, the, the, the fact that blockchain really does offer opportunities that, that we, we oftentimes don't consider. I, I think one of my uh, favorite potential applications is the use of blockchain in prediction markets. Uh, and I'm reminded of um, the, the economist Robin Hansen has this uh, proposal for a kind of government called a uh, futarchy, which is basically voting on values but betting on beliefs. Uh, it's something I think libertarian should say more which is that talk is cheap and once you have to put your money where your mouth is um you know especially in the context of voting uh, it offers a lot of interesting potential applications and that that's one of the more interesting i think at least subjectively i mean all of this is subjective but that's one of the applications i'm most excited about is the um, experimentation in governance uh and the use of prediction markets yeah, that that that's right. And and to Darcy's point, so we can do this right now. We can set up a what we call a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. I I can hop on a website and make a little company. I can give it. It, it could be a dictatorship of a company, or it could be a crypto democracy. In the way that Darcy and I are describing it, we all have one one um, property right to a ownership of that company, and we can. We can do this and, and we could do the same for any civil society organization we want. It just gets harder when it's when it's about, you know, jurisdictional political politics. But again, that's um, that's fundamentally why we wrote the book, because we're trying to think of new ways to organize ourselves that doesn't require on the, this begging from the state for our liberties back that we've described. And a lot of these experiments that we um, we talk about in the book, the, so We've talked for decades about different types of democratic structures that are possible, um, that are theoretically possible, and now they're practically possible. So one of the things that we urge in the book is that we talk a lot about special jurisdictions, so things like special economic zones, um, private cities, and so on. We view these as, as test beds where a lot of these new structures can be trialled, right? And a lot of them will fail, of course. That's the nature of entrepreneurship. But it's super exciting, as you say, Matthew, that we can now experiment on governance in a way that we have never been able to before. And that can include in special jurisdictions where you physically move to another location or you can experiment in governance by staying exactly where you are right now. Um, you can effectively be in a different set of governance rules to your neighbour in many aspects. Uh, and that's, that's very exciting. Now, one thing I realized while reading the book, um, it, it was a very cool thought. I mean, you kind of ended with it in the conclusion, was that advances in any of these individual texts we're, we're discussing. So, you know, whether it's crypto or smart contracts or um, or civic tech or you, you name it, it advances the other texts in a kind of virtuous spiral of digital liber liberalization. Like, so for example, the growing economic integration of cryptocurrency and blockchain services 
will make it more costly for authoritarian governments to completely shut down censorship evading blockchains, right? Like so, um, which they, they might still be willing to pay that price, but it makes it more costly for them to do so. Um, where else do we see that the whole, you know, is greater than the sum of its parts effect? Well, that's right. So um, one of the examples, so we, we go into a bit of um, freedom of speech, particularly looking at China, of course, as, as the most sophisticated um, censorship uh, regime probably in global history, um, and point out that we can read censored material from within China and other um, Chinese citizens can read censored material um, as they want because they have access to the Ethereum blockchain. People have been putting up censored material on that chain, translating it into English so that we can see it as well. Um, uh, and and because the authorities don't want to censor Ethereum network, this large global smart contracting network, there's, there's nothing that they can do. They would have to take the entire network down, which would be itself an incredible engineering challenge, um, but also would be very costly for them. So part of this is just a, um, it's an economic integration story. Um, it is, a, it, it's an optimistic story as well. And, and we in the, you know, liberals like ourselves have been um, are, are disappointed to see that economic liberalization and, um, uh, and political liberalization didn't go hand in hand in countries like China or don't appear to have gone hand in hand. Um, but this is one way that we can see through these digital uncensorable technologies that economic integration with the rest of the world and um, political integration or social integration, however you want to describe it, um, uh, uh, can come together. That we are talking about inherently global networks that are uncensorable, that are liberty enhancing or liberty preserving um and uh, wherever those networks are so are the the positive liberty benefits obviously you guys are you're in australia you're in the melbourne area rmit what's an example of an innovation or policy in australia that would make us american libertarians jealous Oh, God. <laughs> well, th this is a tough question to ask because, of course, right now we're in one of the world's harshest lockdowns um, where, where, where we're subject to a curfew. We're only allowed to go out for one hour a day to exercise. Um, what, Darcy, is there anything that we can say in favour of Australia? To be honest, after a couple of months of lockdown, I've lost all hope. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Look, there, there, are some, there, there are some things that we do well in Australia. Um, uh, so our surveillance state is not quite as um, restrictive. We unfortunately now have a data retention law that, um, uh, that, that is, um, is bad for Australia, but is actually desirable if you're in the United States where you've had the much more expansive NSA um, thing. Australia, uh, Australia has a reputation globally of being what we call larrikins, um, anti-authoritarians, but it's not really like that. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we started as a prison colony and we'll end as a prison colony. I mean, this is this is this is my um, cynical lockdown mentality speaking, so I don't want to be too negative. But um, uh, uh, we have a habit of developing bad laws that get adopted around the world, um, including things like encryption. Um, anti-encryption legislation. We invented plain packaging for tobacco products. 
Um, so, so there's not a huge amount that I would tell the, the U S to follow us on as, as many challenges as you have. Um, if we've invented something, I would sort of stay away from it. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is precisely why you got me on a bad day. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> this is precisely why we wrote this book though. We don't necessarily have to worry about that as much anymore, right? We've got the technologies available to us that, uh, if you're interested in privacy, don't necessarily walk up to Parliament and attempt to get privacy legislation. Go and download a privacy-enhancing app. Join a community that's building these applications. Uh, so this is really what we're trying to urge the liberty movement to do, is that we don't even... Sure, those policy debates will continue, and they should be fought on some margins, but we should be redirecting a lot of our resources to... Uh, downloading these apps and taking our privacy back ourselves and our other civil liberties ourselves. I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. And do go get your hands on a copy of their book, The New Technologies of Freedom. Until next time, be well. This episode of Building Tomorrow was produced by Landry Ayers for Libertarianism.org. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, check out our online encyclopedia or subscribe to one of our half-dozen podcasts.